Sunday morning, we are studying the book of Acts together. And if you're with us this morning without a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and if you just flag them, they'll put a Bible in your hand. Mark to the passage we're studying this morning. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Very nearly to the end of the book of Acts, there'll be one more Sunday that we'll uh, commit to it. But we'll pick up this morning in chapter 28, verse 16. Now, when we came to Rome, that is Paul and Luke and Dr. Luke and Aristarchus, when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard. But Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. And it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. And so when they had come together, he said to them, men and brethren, Though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who when they had examined me wanted to let me go because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had anything of which to accuse my nation. And for this reason, therefore, I have called you to see you and to speak to you, because of the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. And then they said to him, we neither receive letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren who came reported or spoken any evil of you. But we desire to hear from you what you think for concerning this sect, Christianity. We know that it is spoken against everywhere. And so when they had appointed uh, when they had appointed him a day, they, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some disbelieved. So when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one final word to them. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. And therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. And when he had said these, th when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for every opportunity that we have to open up your Bible and to be able to learn more about the rock-solid foundation that is found in your word, the life that is described there, and the foundation that we build our lives upon as we simply obey what it is that you've revealed to us. Thank you, Lord, for your commandments. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your wisdom and your ways and the love behind all of it. And we bless you from this place this morning for the life that has unfolded to us as Christians and simply walking on your path. We bless you for it. We pray this morning you would take this passage of Scripture and that you would use it to speak to each one of our hearts someplace in our 
relationship with you. And for those that stand here this morning and are not yet a Christian, we pray that you would use this morning to draw them into your kingdom and into the relationship with you that they've been created for. All of this requires a work of your Holy Spirit through your word, and we ask that you would bless it, us with that this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We notice in verse 16 that Paul finally arrives in Rome uh, as uh, promised. Uh, humanly speaking, it was an impossibility, but uh, our lives are always, whatever the storms might be, the difficulties, they're always moving toward a harbor in God's word. His truth is, always comes to, to pass, his promises. His living circumstances are described for us as well as in verse 16, upon reaching Rome, Julius the centurion who had delivered uh, Paul and the other prisoners into the hands of the captain of the guard there in Rome, Paul was given permission to live by himself, not in the Roman prison, but in a rented house, though he was chained to uh, a Roman soldier during the entire time of his custody. This wasn't uh, completely unusual uh, in Rome at that time for a prisoner to be held in this way in kind of a loose custody. And certainly, uh, I, I would suspect that Julius put a word in for Paul in order for this uh, living arrangement to be accomplished. Julius would have readily let the prisoner, uh, the guard, uh, head of the, the prison guard, let him know that Paul was not any kind of a risk of flight. In fact, the fact that all of them had made it to Rome was an indication of Paul's determination to get to Rome himself. And so this was his condition uh, in Rome during his uh, imprisonment until he finally was able to testify before Caesar. Paul's initial contact with the Jewish leaders in Rome are described, it's all described in verses 17 through 22. It occurred at Paul's initiation. Paul continues to follow his pattern with a small deviation to it here as he would go into any city on his missionary journeys. He would always make a beeline to the synagogue to present the gospel and Jesus as their Messiah and an opportunity to be saved by putting their faith in him. That offer was always extended to the Jew first, and then it would be extended to the Gentiles. Well, Paul here is in custody. He can't do what he would normally do, and that is uh, to make a, a beeline to the, any one of the synagogues that was in the city of Rome. And so he did the best thing that he could in order to preach the gospel to the Jewish people and to the Jewish religious leaders, and that is he invited them to his home uh, to speak to them. And uh, so, uh, and he made this invitation three days after his arrival. So, as soon as he got settled, as soon as he got a little bit of rest from a very eventful trip, at the first opportunity, he extends this invitation, and they come to meet with him. Now, during the meeting, Paul gave these religious leaders a, um, a very a brief, encapsulated, but absolutely accurate <clears throat> account of the circumstances that had brought him from the city of Jerusalem uh, to Rome. You notice in verse 18, he emphasized that he was innocent of any wrongdoing in the eyes of Rome that had been determined multiple times. In verse 17, he declared that he was innocent of any wrongdoing toward the Jews or a violation of their customs. In verse 19, he revealed that though the Jewish religious leaders 
in Jerusalem had attacked him and unfairly had attacked him, that Paul, he reassured them, Paul would not use his opportunity once he did stand before uh, Caesar Nero to bring an accusation or use it as an opportunity to kind of demean or in any way uh, the, the Jewish people, despite their unfair treatment of him. And then very significantly in verse 20, Paul let them know that the real reason behind uh, his chained condition was uh, the hope of Israel. Uh, behind all of the accusations of the Jews, all of the unfairness of the Romans and so forth, Paul says, I sit before you in this condition for one reason alone, and that is the hope of Israel. And the hope of Israel referred ultimately to the Messiah, referred to all of the promises uh, to Israel uh, surrounding him. In other words, Paul uh, declared himself to be a prisoner uh, because of his witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and for declaring Jesus to be not only Israel's Messiah, but then further calling on both Jew and Gentile to put their faith in him for the forgiveness of sins and for salvation and to do it all based upon the Old Testament prophecies and the Old Testament scriptures and promises concerning the Messiah. And we remember that this was Paul's continual theme when he was given the opportunity uh, to speak, even when he was, spoke before the Roman governors of Felix and Festus. He never used the opportunity to necessarily demean the Jews or to even advance his own righteousness. It was always to preach Christ in these environments. And the fact that he remained in custody was because this is what he was uh, faithful to do. Their response to him is described in verses 21 and 22. They declared that they hadn't received any letters at all from the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem accusing Paul of anything, nor had any religious leaders uh, coming from Jerusalem to Rome brought any kind of accusation against Paul to prepare uh, the Jews in Rome for Paul's uh, arrival. They'd received no word uh, at all. Uh, this does <clears throat> make probably as a consequence of the fact that following Paul's appeal to Caesar while in Caesarea to stand before Caesar for his trial after having had two trials before two Roman governors, again Festus and Felix, both Roman governors finding him innocent, they had to conclude that they weren't going to be any more successful in their accusations against Paul before Caesar than they had been with these other, uh, uh, these other Roman governors. And so they called off the chase. They said they knew it was a farce, what they were trying to do anyway. And they said, let's not escalate it all the way to a Roman Empire level here when we'll probably lose the case before Caesar as well. Another factor that probably pay, played into all of this was the fact that just 10 years earlier, uh, from the time that uh, we are in, in, in Acts chapter 28, uh, the Jews had been expelled from the ca capital city of Rome by the Roman officials. It was a persecution against the Jews. And the Jews had only in the last three or four years began following that kind of 10-year exile, uh, two or, you know, six or seven years into it, they had begun to now creep back in or, or make their way back into the capital <clears throat> a little bit at a time, and so they were probably, when all of this was going on, endeavoring to keep, as a people, a low profile in terms of uh, Roman officials. 
And probably the Jews in Jerusalem said, no, we don't really want the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem, in, in Rome, bringing an accusation uh, uh, against, uh, uh, against Paul before Caesar that is utterly baseless. And then Caesar puts his attention upon us as the Jewish people again, and then drives us out of Rome once and again. So they're laying low at this time in their their history. These Jews did express in verse 22 their, <clears throat> to Paul their desire to hear more from him about Christianity. And all of that uh, sets a stage then for a second meeting that's described in verses 23 to 28. At their second meeting, the circumstances were that uh, they reached a mutually agreed upon date that they would come to Paul's house. Uh, his dwelling, and that Paul would educate them concerning Christianity, and that he would lay a case for recognizing Jesus as the hope of Israel, that is, the promised Jewish Messiah. When the day came, an even larger group of Jewish religious leaders came than even came to the first meeting, and Paul testified to them, we're told, of the kingdom of God. In the book of Acts, that phrase, the kingdom of God, it usually it appears as kind of a convenient way of summarizing uh, the subject of the gospel in terms of all of its parts. It was a way of, of uh, declaring that the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom that we enter into through faith in Jesus Christ, and that when we do, we receive the forgiveness of our sins overwhelming our past. The Holy Spirit comes into our life, and we receive a power to live a holy life, the kind of holiness that we've sung about this morning, and, and to live a life different from the life, a sinful life that we once lived, that the gospel impacts our present, not just our past, but that it also impacts our future, that one day, as, as Christians, we are one day uh, have the promise of the glory uh, uh, of heaven as well. And since all of this, as, Jesus, as Paul is laying all of this out, since all of this is found in Jesus, Paul then went on to endeavor to persuade uh, them that Jesus was the promised Jewish Messiah. And he built his case for that fact upon the surest thing that would be recognized by a Jewish religious audience, and that is he built his case on the witness of the law of Moses and the prophets, uh, the two great subdivisions of, uh, or divisions of the Old Testament. Now, doubtless, Paul explain to them how the meeting would kind of unfold is that Paul would then describe to them the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, uh, where he was born, when he was born, uh, the life that he lived, his teaching, uh, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And as he would lay out this life before them, he would then say, now hold that thought. Now I want to turn, you to you, turn with you to this passage out of Isaiah or this passage out of Micah or this passage out of uh, Zechariah. And he would then go to the Old Testament scriptures and say, see, this is what the Holy Spirit declared and God the Father declared would be true of the Messiah when he came. And Jesus is an exact fulfillment and, uh, and, and perfectly uh, fulfills the, the description that is made in those uh, Old Testament scriptures. And there's no doubt that he would have spoken of Jesus being born into the world and then take them to Isaiah chapter 9, <clears throat> excuse me, that declared that 
the Messiah would be born into the world, even as Jesus was. And then into Isaiah chapter 7, where it declared that he would, the Messiah would be born of a virgin, even as Jesus was. Then to Micah chapter 5, where he would be born in the city of Bethlehem, even as Jesus was. And then <clears throat> further, that he would be div divine, that he would be God in human flesh. And then Paul would simply take them to Isaiah chapter 9 and Isaiah chapter 7 to, uh, to show them that the Scriptures had declared Messiah would be that, even as Jesus was. And then how that God declared that when the Messiah came, he would come from the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and not only be the, of the bloodline of the great patriarchs of the Jewish nation, but also be born of the specific bloodline of Judah among the 12 tribes of, of Israel, just as Jesus was. And that the, the Messiah would not only be born to the tribe of Judah, but that he would be born of the bloodline of King David, even as Jesus Jesus was, and how he would be largely rejected by his own people, the Jews, how he would be betrayed by a close friend, and not just be betrayed, but be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, how he would be accused and then remain silent before his accusers, how in the course of his life he would be beaten and spat upon, and then ultimately be pierced through his hands and his feet, that the soldiers would gamble for his clothing while he was being crucified, that he would be crucified with transgressors or thieves, that in the course of that crucifixion, he would end up with his side being pierced, that he would be wounded for our transgressions, that he would die upon a cross, not for his own sins, that he would live a sinless life, but that he would die for our sins and that he would be bruised for our iniquities. And all of it was just exactly as occurred in the life and in the ministry of Jesus. And all of it was exactly as God had said would be the case beforehand in the Old Testament scriptures, the law and the prophets. And it's estimated that Jesus fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies in his first coming and the remainder he will fulfill at his second coming. This is familiar territory for most of us uh, even as we've gone through the book of Acts, but Paul is repetitive on this issue, and so I reserve the right to be repetitive myself on the issue as well, though to look at it from a little different angle here this morning. Here's these things that I've read to you, and, and it's just taken me a matter of two to three minutes to declare to you 16 prophecies, 16 of the... 300 in the, that Jesus fulfilled in his second coming. It's taken me, uh, as I said, two to three minutes uh, to do that. And some of you have been around for a while. You know that uh, historically when I speak of these things, I'll say something like, here it is, I've given you 16 of the 300 prophecies, but we could spend, uh, if we wanted to examine all of them, we could spend the entire day through the lunch hour into the dinner time and then on into the evening before we'd even begin uh, to remotely uh, exhaust what it is that's this description that is given in the Old uh, Testament. And sometimes uh, when someone like me says something like that, the tendency might be to think that this is just uh, hyperbole until you realize that that's exactly what the Apostle Paul did here. He spoke to them on this very subject alone from morning on into the evening. 
he addressed them on this individual subject for 12 to 14 hours and probably did not exhaust the subject. And what this does is we consider the length of time in which he preached to them and spoke to them and and persuaded them and, and taught them. It speaks to the sheer amount of biblical evidence that Paul possessed and the time that it took for him to lay it out that Jesus was and is the promised Jewish Messiah. And in all of this, Paul was simply following Jesus' example. Jesus declared to the Jewish religious leaders of his day in their continual resistance against him, he said, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have everlasting life, but these are they which testify of me. In other words, Jesus spoke to the institution of religion at the time, so corrupted by the time he had come on the scene. And he said, you've simply turned the law and the prophets on their head. You've turned it into a way of keeping commandments in order to get into heaven. There was never the intention of that related to the Old Testament. All of this is a description of me and that salvation is on the basis of faith in me and trusting in me as the Jewish Messiah and as the Savior of the world. Jesus himself did exactly what Paul did here. When you remember on the night of uh, the afternoon of Jesus' resurrection, on that wonderful Sunday 2,000 years ago, and there's two disciples who are making their way from the city of Jerusalem to the city of Emmaus where they lived, And their hopes are completely dashed in terms of Jesus being the Jewish Messiah. They've left Jerusalem without word of his resurrection. All they know is that he's been crucified and he's been buried. And without any hope at all, that all of their hopes concerning Jesus as the Messiah completely dashed as they're on their path to Emmaus. And Jesus comes alongside them somehow supernaturally there. They do not know that it it, it, it is him and he begins to speak to them and discuss their kind of emotional and mental condition, and they describe how we had hoped that Jesus was the Messiah, and Jesus spoke to them in Luke chapter 24, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And then beginning at Moses and all of the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And the response of these disciples to that handling of the law and the prophets by Jesus is given to us in that same chapter. And we're told that when Jesus departed from them and they realized at that point it was him, they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? And that response that they had to this prophetic witness to Jesus Christ as the Messiah of the Jews and the Savior of the world, that great burning heart and and experience and that, that testimony there to the Scriptures, response to the Scripture is the only response that's worthy of the theme. The worthy of the theme, the description of Jesus as it is in the Law and the Prophets. I remember being a new Christian and reading a book that was very popular back in those days. It's still in print, by the way. 
and it was entitled Science Speaks that really uh, gave some very important perspective to me to relate it to all of this as this prophetic foundation was being built into my uh, Christian life. And the author was a man by the name of Peter Stoner. He was a, a college professor in mathematics and uh, astronomy at Pasadena City College. He had a PhD in mathematics. And what he did is he did a, a project uh, uh, with several of his classes, and they decided to apply the well-known and very accepted principle of probability to biblical prophecy. And so they decided to take just eight of the uh, 300 Old Testament prophecies Jesus fulfilled in his first coming, and they determined to assign a very conservative mathematical probability uh, to those prophecies. And they began with the first prophecy in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that declared that when the Messiah came into the world, he would be born in the city of Bethlehem, even as Jesus was. And so they asked themselves in an attempt to, to put a, a mathematical probability to uh, that single prophecy, they asked themselves, one man and how many? And in, in the world over in human history has been born in Bethlehem. And they proceeded to take the average population of Bethlehem from the time of Micah to the present time. They then divided it by the average population of the earth during the same period, and they came up with a mathematical probability of someone being born into human history in the city of Bethlehem as opposed to every other city in the world and conservatively determined the odds to be one man and 2.8 times 10 to the fifth power. And that's what they assigned to it. The second prophecy they took was out of Malachi chapter 1, which declares concerning the Messiah, behold, I will send my messenger. And, uh, uh, and he shall prepare the way before me. Speaking of a forerunner that would be born before the Messiah, that would be, uh, uh, who would prepare the way for the Messiah. And so they asked themselves, uh, even as John the Baptist did for Jesus, and they asked themselves the question, one man and how many, the world over, and all of human history, has had a forerunner uh, born into the world to prepare his way. And so they assigned a conservative probability of one in a thousand, or one in ten to the third power. The third prophecy they took was out of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation lowly, and riding upon a colt, the foal of an ass, even as Jesus did in his triumphal entry. And their question that they then posed to themselves was, one man and how many who has been born in Bethlehem and had a forerunner did enter Jerusalem as a king riding on a colt, the foal of an ass? And it became immediately apparent to them as they'd come to only the third prophecy that this was too restrictive already. And so, they, because they knew of only one man who fulfilled even these three in human history, Jesus, so they dumbed down the requirement and they asked this question, one man and how many who has entered into Jerusalem as a ruler has entered riding on a colt the foal of an ass? And they then assigned it a conservative probability of one in a hundred, one in ten to the second power. 
The fourth prophecy that they looked at was also in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 6. And one, and it reads, and one shall say to him, that is Messiah, what are these wounds in thy hand? And then he shall answer, with which I was, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends, even as occurred to Jesus, largely rejected by the Jewish people and certainly by the Jewish religious leaders and crucified as a result of it. And, and so uh, they, they uh, took and, uh, and, and uh, asked, is Jesus here betrayed by Judas, one of his disciples, by a friend, ultimately uh, end that betrayal ending in death and resulting in wounds in his hands? And so what are the odds of that happening? And they put the odds of a person being uh, betrayed by a friend with the betrayal resulting in wounding of his hands conservatively at one in a thousand, one in ten to the third power. The fifth prophecy they went to was Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12. And I said to them, if you think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. And so they weighed out for my price 30 pieces of silver, speaking to the fact that the Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, even as Jesus was with Judas. And so the question here was very simple. Of people who have been betrayed in human history, how many of them have been betrayed for exactly 30 pieces of silver? Not five pieces of silver, not 29, not 31, but 30 pieces of silver. And they set their estimate again very, very conservatively at one in 10,000, one in 10 to the fourth power. But they then actually chose uh, to lower that and, 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 and assign a, a far more conservative number of one in a thousand, one in 10 to the third power. The sixth prophecy that they uh, endeavored to tackle was again Zechariah chapter 11, verse 13, which declares, and the Lord said to me, cast it, uh, in terms of the, the 30 pieces of silver, cast it in, uh, unto the potter, uh, a goodly price that I was prized of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Now, this gets very, very specific, where uh, here is a betrayal that occurs. It is a betrayal for 30 pieces of silver. And then not all, that all 30 pieces of the silver will not only be returned, but when the 30 pieces of silver are returned uh, in accordance with Zechariah, they will be cast down on the floor of the temple in Jerusalem, and then those 30 pieces of silver will be picked up and delivered to a potter. And all of that is exactly as happened uh, to Jesus in the betrayal of Judas. And the class, uh, as you might imagine, they doubted that there had ever been another incident like this in all of human history apart from Judas and, and Jesus, but they agreed to give it an estimate of one in 100,000, one in 10 to the fifth power. And then they took a prophecy out of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, speaking of Messiah, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is broad as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. And so they asked themselves, even as was true of Jesus, one man and how many? 
after fulfilling these other prophecies, when he is oppressed and afflicted, when he is on trial for his life, though completely innocent of every charge that is being brought against him, will make no defense uh, for himself. And again, the students and the professor, they could only think of one person in all of human history that had ever done this, Jesus only, but they still then assigned it the number of one in 10,000. But they used an even more conservative number uh, of one in 1,000, one in 10 to the third power in their calculations. And the final prophecy that they looked at was uh, the famous Messianic Psalm, uh, Psalm 22, written by David, where it describes the Messiah uh, on the cross, for dogs have encompassed me. Uh, chapter 22, verse 16, Psalm 22, verse 16, the dogs have encompassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. And since David was the author of Psalm 22, they asked themselves, one in how many from the time of David has been crucified? And they then proceeded to study the methods of execution down through the ages, the frequency of the various means of execution in time, and conservatively estimated the probability of, of being crucified by, as a means of death and capital punishment as one in 10,000, one in 10 to the fourth power. They then multiplied all of their probabilities together, and they came up with the odds of one man and how many, the world over, could fulfill just eight of these prophecies by random chance, and the number that they came up with was 2.8 times 10 to the 28th power. But that was a little too complicated. So they decided to simplify things and make things even more conservatively, and they dropped the 2.8 by nearly two-thirds, and they decided to, to work on the probability of just one in 10 uh, to uh, the 28th power. That is a, one with 27, a 10 with 27 zeros after it. Then, which they then divided by the total number of people who have lived since the time that the prophecies were given, and again, they carefully estimated that at 88 billion. And so they determined that the odds of anyone that they could by random chance be born into human history and fulfill even eight of these 300 prophecies, it would be one in 10 to the 17th power. Now, that's a big number. Uh, even if you're a mathematician, that's a really, really big number, and it's bigger than most of us can get our heads around. So Dr. Stoner and his class has endeavored to illustrate it for us. Uh, if, for instance, you were to take a hat and you have 10 tickets, and uh, you mark one of those tickets and you throw the 10 tickets into the hat and you stir them around, the odds that you would pull out the hat, the, the ticket that is marked out of the hat would be uh, one in 10. But concerning the number of 10 to the 17th power, uh, you have to do away with tickets and you have to do away with the hat. And you've got to replace them, uh, as they did, with silver dollars and the state of Texas. And they declared that if we were to take 10 to the 17th power a number of silver dollars and spread them out evenly over the entire state of Texas, they would cover the entire state with silver dollars to a depth of two feet. Now mark one of those silver dollars, stir it around thoroughly in this mass of silver dollars all over the state, 
and then blindfold a man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but at some point he has to lean over and pick up one silver dollar and say that this is the right one. And the odds that he would pick the marked silver dollar by random chance are the same odds that a man would be born to this world and then randomly fulfill just eight of these prophecies. And when you look at something like that, you think to yourself, who in their right mind would bet a $1,000 against Jesus as the Messiah and the Savior of the world? Who would bet $100 against it, much less, less bet our eternity against it, against the fact that Jesus is, as he describes himself to be, the Jewish Messiah and the Savior of the world, and that he declared himself to be that in the light of the Old Testament prophecy, uh, prophecies. Who would bet against that? It'd be ludicrous to bet against it. They then applied this principle of probability to 16 prophecies. I'm not going there. You can relax. And then they, they then took uh, 48 of the 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled and, and assigned a mathematical probability to all of that. And the numbers became so astronomical that silver dollars in Texas were completely uh, out of the question in terms of an illustration. And they ended up with the 48 prophecies of uh, a, a probability of someone filling it, uh, fulfilling these prophecies, 48 of them randomly of 10 to the 150 seventh power. And once you get into these numbers, now you've got to talk about it in terms of electrons and light years and the universe and multiple universes as he does in the book. And why would God give the Jews and give us and give you and me this great prophetic picture of Jesus in the Old Testament? except that he gave that prophetic picture to us so that when someone was introduced into human history and began to match perfectly those prophecies that we would then recognize on the basis of the most authoritative thing that exists in the world, that is the very word of God, recognize him to be exactly who he declared himself to be. I think of it oftentimes, as some of you well known, as a, as a great canvas that would be put before us, a blank white canvas. And you take a master painter and you give uh, him or her uh, the brushes and the paints and so forth, and, and they begin to apply uh, one brush after another uh, uh, with a broad brush, big brush, fine uh, strokes of the brush and so forth. And at the end of 300 strokes of a brush, a master painter uh, can put before you uh, a, a very strong resemblance of who it is uh, that they want you to see or to understand understand it to be in the prophetic picture of the scriptures has done that uh, uh, in, in spades and steroids and, 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 and all of it done so that no one would be born into the world and planet earth, live their three score and ten, and then die without recognizing the, the perfect uh, resemblance of Jesus, the perfect fulfillment of it to the Old Testament uh, prophecies. The simple fact of the matter is, in this regard, that if Jesus is not the Messiah, then no one is the Messiah. Their response to this long Bible study by the Apostle Paul is described for us in verses 24 and 25. Some were persuaded 
They were convinced. They got it. They got what Paul was talking about. And others were told in verse 24, they would not believe. And the Greek word for disbelieve there, uh, it doesn't mean that uh, they weren't convinced. It means that they refused to believe. We're told in verse 25 that these two groups then proceeded uh, to engage in an argument with one another. Paul kind of goes off to the side here, and then they begin to disagree with one another, uh, and uh, it appears that as leaders of uh, the, the synagogues and the religious Jews in, in Rome, they're trying to come to kind of a single conclusion, a single position that they can all take concerning Christianity and concerning uh, Jesus. And as this argument is going on, this is an argument that Paul had seen played out over and over and over again in his three missionary journeys in synagogues all over uh, the known world. This wasn't anything new uh, to him. And then at some point, we're told in verse 25, they started to leave uh, the home in which this great meeting occurred. And here we have at that moment in time in verse 25, I think before us, one of the great mysteries in human history. And one of the greatest mysteries in human history is the refusal of the Jews in general to recognize Jesus as their Messiah, despite the fact that Jesus was Jewish despite the fact that all the apostles were Jewish, despite the fact that in the earliest part of the early church, every Christian was a Jew. And you notice Paul's response to all of this. As we go through the three missionary journeys in the book of Acts, and we see this same thing played out, but we're, not, we're, we're never given Paul's response to them uh, so often uh, to their unbelief. But here it's recorded for us. And in the face of this refusal, the Apostle Paul, and remember himself a Jew, he declared to them a final word uh, before their departure. And the final word that he declared to them was to quote a passage of Scripture from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 6, and in doing so, he reveals to them the true cause for this rejection of Jesus as Messiah, both then and now. And he diagnosed and, and, and exposed the causes as number one in verse 27, that their heart had grown dull. And when it talks about dull there in terms of the heart, it literally means their heart had grown fat or thick. And the idea is that their heart had become hard and insensitive. A thick heart or a fat heart is a heart that will not allow itself to be penetrated by truth, that protects itself from that kind of uh, penetration. Their ears, he declared in verse 27, are hard of hearing. They simply were not open to the truth about Jesus. And then further in verse 27, their eyes, they have closed. They simply refuse to see what is, would be so clear uh, to an honest seeker. And I don't think any of this is unique only to the Jews now. I think our uh, secular culture, certainly the city, you know, here in Modesto that we live in, and California, the United States of America, a very secular culture and a very uh, largely Gentile culture, uh, I think is hardly uh, better 
in their assessment or a willingness to hear anything related to the Bible or anything related to Christianity. I mean, you've got to give these Jews credit in this passage for all of their failures. At least in verse 22, they were curious about Christianity. They were curious about Jesus. They were curious about what the Bible might say about these things. And they desired for Paul to declare these things uh, to them, to explain to them to, in the words of the passage, to testify, even to persuade them. And today I think it's getting harder and harder to find people who will give any time at all to these things, even a moment's consideration to these kind of things in the course of sometimes a very long life, and their hearts completely hardened and increasingly so in our culture toward Jesus, towards Christianity, towards Christians, towards uh, the Bible, towards the gospel. And over a long lifetime, they can spend all of their years just completely refusing to allow their eyes or their ears or their hearts or their minds to be used even for five minutes to give any serious consideration to any of this. And thus, in an ultimate sense, their ears and their eyes and their hearts and their minds are being completely wasted. It is to, uh, de in denying uh, my eyes and my ears and my heart and my mind and denying them these truths and denying them exposure to the things of God, I am denying them of the single greatest thing, the great thing that they have been created for, and that is to explore the life and the teaching of Jesus. And then as a result of that, to put my faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins and then for the rest of my life to use my eyes and my ears and my heart and my mind to explore the infinite wonders found only in a relationship with God. Well, we can't change the world and we can't change other people. And so let me narrow our focus to what we can change and speak to this morning. What about you this morning, if you're not a, yet a Christian? What will you do with the life of Jesus as it's described in the Bible? A fascinating conversation happened between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders of his day in the face of their rejection of him. And one day Jesus stood before them and he said, which of you convicts me of sin. Which of you in the three and a half years of my public ministry or all of my life, and I've been under your microscope, everything I've said, everything I've done, you have watched with an eagle eye for three and a half years. And now out of all that you have seen, which of you can cast a single sin in my face that I have committed that you can accuse me of. And you know what their answer was? Silence. Silence. Complete silence. And they would have given their right arm, these Jewish religious leaders, to have seen one sin, either spoken or in his life, to throw into his face to break that silence. 
But no one can ever break that silence, the silence that's associated with that question. And so Jesus broke the silence that that question will always be met with, and he broke it with another question. Which of you convicts me of sin? And then he went on very significantly and said, and if I tell the truth, why won't you believe me? Why won't you believe me? What will you do with Jesus' teaching when even the enemies of Jesus were forced to declare concerning his teaching, no man ever spoke like this man? And what will you do with the witness of the Scriptures to the fact that he is not only the promised Messiah of the Jews, but he is the Savior of the world? You must do something with these truths, and you will do something with these things. And the only logical thing to do with all of this is to make him your Savior and to make him your Lord. I hear it continually as a pastor and as a Christian, how it is that Christianity is portrayed over and over again as something that these people believe in on the basis of blind faith. But if a person will simply take the time to examine the life and the teaching of Jesus, to study the Bible, to view the prophetic evidence associated with his life so we would not miss him when he came, then we soon learn that it is not a faith in Jesus that is blind, but it is unbelief that is blind, and deliberately so. Paul's final exhortation to them is very, very strong, but it needed to be. And he makes the strong exhortation to them in the hope that it might wake some of them up to the fact that their rejection of Jesus has nothing to do with Jesus himself, no fault that they could find in him, but their rejection was entirely the result of their own ignorance, their own hard-heartedness, and their own dishonest use of not only their minds, their eyes and their ears, but also their minds and their heart. And that the true cause of unbelief concerning Jesus is never the proper use of one's eyes or ears or heart or mind, but rather it is always a hard heart and an unwillingness to be led where an honest use of the senses, of the eyes, of the ears, of the heart and the mind would inevitably lead a person, and that is to a faith in him as the promised Jewish Messiah and the Savior of the world. And it's yet the same today as Paul spoke to that Jewish audience 2,000 years ago. Always at the core of it, is not some fault in Christ or in the Bible or in his teaching, but some fault that has to do supremely with the hardness of my own heart and an unwillingness to look at what God has supplied to us uh, through his word. And yet today, and I think time and eternity, I know time and eternity, will one day reveal it to be true of every single person that what a person does with Jesus is never supremely a reflection upon him. 
and certainly never a reflection, a bad reflection upon him when he is rejected and refused, but it is always a bad reflection upon our own hearts and our own minds. I know how to deliver a sermon like this in a less direct way. I'm capable of it. But I use the directness that I used this morning because it is the tone of the passage. And here you have these Jewish religious leaders. Their heart is so hard. It is so thick. They haven't been, in, in, their heart hasn't been hardened by a secular culture, but by a religious culture. But within this room ourselves, the indoctrination of the culture away from Jesus and away from the Bible and away from uh, Christianity and the hardness of heart that we can develop to ever being honest in that search or giving consideration to anything about the life he lived and what he taught. And, and that hardness of heart that is so strong in so many within a secular culture, it needs to be penetrated because it leaves us in such a dangerous condition of one day potentially standing before Jesus, if I stay in that condition all the days of my life, and everyone stands before Jesus one day, and then to potentially hear the question posed on an individual basis, which of you convicts me of sin? And in that moment in time, you will be no more successful in breaking that silence than the religious Jews were 2,000 years ago. And then to be prepared tragically for the question that will follow immediately upon it, why didn't you believe the things that I told you? And so the importance of giving consideration to Jesus, his life, the scriptures, those questions on this side of death and eternity, when I can endeavor to prepare for that time and so that I don't face him as my judge and speechless before him in my unbelief, but to stand before him as my savior. If you are here today and you are not yet a Christian, there are going to be pastors and other men and women that will be up in front immediately after the service and they would love to answer your questions and pray with you to begin the relationship with God that you have been created for and that God has gone through such great links to not only supply you with a Savior from a throne in heaven, from his right hand, but then to supply you with a prophetic description of him long before he came so that when he came, even a child couldn't miss him as he was introduced into human history. Today is the day of salvation. Paul spoke in that room 2,000 years ago as a man who was speaking in a room where he understood that there was life and death within that room related to every person that was in that room. And the same thing is true of this room this morning. And I invite you and I beseech you if you are not yet a Christian to give this serious consideration and if today is the day you'd like to surrender, these men and women would love to pray with you to begin that wonderful relationship with God without which nothing in life can satisfy or even make any sense. Let's stand together and we'll pray now.
Father, thank you for this portrait that you have painted for us here of the Apostle Paul. And I thank you for the strength of his spirit and the boldness that you've given him by your Holy Spirit and to not allow a single one of those people to leave that room out of a love for their souls without knowing how serious it is to reject your son and then, Lord, his refusal to allow them to leave that room 2,000 years ago and convince themselves that it was anything other than the hardness of their own heart and their unwillingness to see what anyone who is fair could see or what anyone who is fair would do with what they've heard. And I pray, Lord, for that same spirit and that same urgency and strength and sobriety to be in this room and every heart that is here this morning. And I pray that you use the strength of this passage in your spirit to draw every single person who is not a Christian in this room today to you and into salvation, Lord, and the light of the sacrifice that you have made for their salvation and our salvation and the prophetic portrait that you have supplied to them so that their faith would not be blind, but that they would recognize that only unbelief is blind in the face of all of this. We ask for this work of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. If you stand here this morning and...